Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplified Podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert. Joining me on the podcast today is the theatre director Nikolai Foster. Nikolai was born in Copenhagen, Denmark, grew up in North Yorkshire and trained at the Drama Centre London and at the Crucible Sheffield. His work has been seen in many of the UK's leading regional theatres, touring houses and internationally. Nikolai has been director on attachment at the Sheffield Crucible, the Royal Court Theatre and National Theatre Studio and he serves as the associate director at the West Yorkshire Playhouse in Leeds. Nikolai is currently the Artistic Director of Leicester Curve, where recently he's directed Irving Berlin's White Christmas, the world premiere of Dougal Irvin's adaptation of Riaz Khan's Memoirs of an Asian Football Casual. That production was nominated for the Best Regional Production Award at the What's On Stage Awards in 2019. He's also directed An Office from a Gentleman, the musical, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Sunset Boulevard, Joe Orton's What the Butler Saw in a co-production with the Theatre Royal Bath, and Greece, which not only played in Leicester, but at the Dubai World Trade Center as well. I had a great chat with Nikolai, so I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Nikolai. Thank you for joining us on the Nottingham Playhouse Amplified podcast. Uh, it's a great pleasure to speak to you. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thank you, Craig. It's great to hear your voice. Great to be chatting to you. How are, how are you getting on? All right. Yes, I'm all right. Uh, I've been recording these podcasts for a couple of weeks now. I've spoken to some really interesting people. It's like the uh, the shining beacon in my day in my makeshift bedroom studio. Um, right, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I apologise in advance then that, that um, <laughs> those beacons are about to be turned off for this chat, but um, never mind. Um, so tell us, what does uh, what does social distancing look like for you? What, are you, what have you been up to? Well, it's, 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 it's going all right. I mean, you know, it's all about looking for the positives, I guess. And I feel sort of very fortunate in, in, in some ways that me and my mum lived together and we had sort of quite a complicated and honest conversation when this all, you know, started happening about whether I should move out and, you know, what was the best thing to do in terms of her health and making sure that she's, safe and and well looked after and you know we're our own little unique family unit my mum the dog and myself and we decided actually we'll we'll stay together and we're we're sort of making it work you know well and um um it's 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 going all right you know and the days are sort of more structured than they've ever been and in some way that's quite helpful that we're sort of doing curve hours 10 till five. And whereas, you know, during the normal day at curve, when you're going in, you'd sort of start at half eight and you'd never really leave the building and you'd still be there at 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, the days all wonderfully drifted into one in a very different way. Weirdly having this structure now where you sort of say, we're stopping work at five and going to go off and do something else so that it doesn't just sort of blur into one sort of endless day it's quite helpful and you know it's um it's a very long-winded way to say that we're making the best out of it and I'm very fortunate that I'm with my mum and the dog and we've got our house in Leicester and we're sort of able to do curve work and and carry on so it's 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 weird as it is for everyone and there are moments of absolute terror and despair and real sort of bleakness but you know, they are momentary and, you know, the days are filled with the sort of activity and 
positivity. So it's 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 as good as it can be, and I feel you know very grateful. I've got my health, and my mum's healthy, so um, it, it's as good as it can be. And yeah, we're making the very best out of these strange times. Um, and obviously, uh, Curve have uh, put some work online. How's that been going? Has the reception to that been good? Yes, it has been good. Um, I think I'm really, I feel incredibly proud of everybody who's been working on the online stuff because as soon as it was clear that our doors were going to be shutting, we immediately sort of leapt into action and felt that, you know, we've got to continue that dialogue with our audience, not only because we want our audience to remain when we come out the other end of this and not lost contact with them, but also it feels genuinely very important that there are going to be many people who for Curve popping in maybe just for a coffee or a CYC class or another sort of class, you know, that is a very significant and important part of their life. And so it felt like sort of keeping or, or not keeping, but now shifting a lot of that stuff online felt really important. And we we've done a lot already, you know, we've already got two of our, um, shows online which were never intended to go online you know they're just archive recordings sort of scratchy um, slightly shambolic things you know with a wobbly camera at the back of the auditorium and you know we, we're trying to aim to get one of those up a week and that's all free to access and so far we've had memoirs of an Asian football casual up and the importance of being earnest just went up this weekend and you know the take-up has been great it's nothing you know, we don't have the resources or the clout of the National Theatre. So I think we've racked up about a thousand views on memoirs and many people who've, you know, seen the archive have been really kind and generous and donated, um, you know, some some cash, what, what they can sort of towards the, you know, the thing of watching it. So it feels like it's it's going well. And then we're um, we've, we're sort of you know, we're planning ahead and designing the Wizard of Oz for Christmas and suddenly where design meetings were sort of rushed and, you know, scrambled and, you you know, you're chasing your tail. Now we've got so much time to work on the design and Colin Richmond, the designer and myself, were thinking about all those rainbows that people are putting on their windows, these rainbows of hope. And we thought, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could use them in some way to inspire our design for the Wizard of Oz this Christmas. Again, trying to think of positive things to sort of emerge out of all of this and use our communities and use their artistry and their voices um, in our work. So we've just launched um, a campaign and appeal, I don't know what you'd call it, to um, get kids and their families to send in their rainbows of hope. And they will, um, I'm imagining at the moment, although we're not sort of resolved of, of exactly how we'll use them, but... You know, we're hoping that when the audience come in to see the show at Christmas, the front cloth will just be hundreds of thousands of rainbows of hope from all around the world. And then we've sort of extended that out a bit more, thinking about what the world of Oz looks like. And obviously it's Dorothy, a, a child who takes us into that world. So why don't we ask young people and children to draw their version of Oz and um, sketch out their designs for the yellow brick road and Dorothy's slippers and the Wicked Witch of the West and all that sort of thing and and we'll look at maybe using some of those images and the way those children draw and express themselves on paper as sort of part of our design for um, the world of Oz so I think it's it's the way that that 
you know, obviously we're all thinking about things differently now. And I think just from that sort of the rainbows of hope and sort of getting that thing online and then that could potentially inspire the entire design for our Christmas show. It's it's just interesting how really positive sort of um, things can be sort of born during this period. So I'm obviously waffling on now and I've sort of slightly gone off piece from your original question. But yes, the online stuff is going well. And there's lots of it going up. Like you, I'm sort of doing um, interviews with actors and practitioners who've worked at Curve. And what's great about having this extra time is that you can go into people's process and past and career in a way that often you can't when you're just working on a show because it's about getting sound bites or, you know, promoting something. Whereas now we've really got nothing to promote apart from theatre itself and you know it is fascinating isn't it that you know we 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 are all all of our theatres are fighting for our long-term survival now but what is it that everybody's doing at home they're drawing they're reading they're watching Netflix they're watching shows online they're engaging with their local theatres in new ways and it it just sort of goes to prove absolutely fundamentally doesn't it how important culture and art whatever you want to call it this this thing we do with our imaginations which we share together is is now as important as it's ever been and I think when we come out the other side of this it's going to be its um, place in our society in our communities is just going to be you know greater than it than it ever has been before anyway that's a very long-winded answer to your question um so uh no it's it's a great answer and you know i i I absolutely agree and i uh in a couple of these conversations uh actually being at home and unable to uh go to work every day and you know we're both lucky we go to work in theaters every day but you can sort of get used to it and now actually having a little bit of time to miss it and also realizing how how important uh, that experiences, you know, sharing experiences with, uh, with audiences and the communities that theatres have. Yeah. It yeah. just seems, um, well, I, uh, speaking personally, I realise just how lucky we are to get to do that. And uh, this is a time where perhaps I've realised that I, I might may have become a little bit jaded with the, the treadmill of getting the work done. But actually now you really notice its absence and how important it is to people. Um, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I every day when I sort of there's a I to turn the corner on um, the street, g- 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 walking up to curve from where I park my car, and I just every day I sort of marvel at the building when I see it. But you do sort of it's it's a it's a marvel that happens every day. So I guess by virtue of the fact it happens every day, it sort of becomes familiar and normal. And I think now not being able to see the actual building, not being able to go into the building, not being able to smell the building, the sort of sensation of walking through the doors in the morning when it's very quiet and the cleaners are just sort of, you know, doing their job and, you know, you just, the the, the sounds of the building. And then when it starts to come to life with groups coming in or rehearsals starting or, you know, the team members, you know, coming in and just the sound of, you know, our costume supervisor, Eddie, has a very distinctive laugh. Um, and just missing things like that it's 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 heartbreaking and um it, it, i think it for all of us it, whatever you know if we work in a in an industry to not be able to go in and share that every day with our colleagues and our friends and our teams is, is i think it, it is very very difficult and very challenging and um 
I miss it desperately. And my mum just keeps saying, you know, that I can see us walking back into curve one day and it all being, you know, the doors being open and shows being on. And, you know, because in those bleak moments, you think, well, how on earth will we ever get any of this back? Because we we feel at the moment we've lost so much. Um, but, you know, we will and, and we will walk back in there so um yeah it's um it's amazing how much you can miss a building as well as you know people and how alive a building is there's a wonderful um article that the sort of head of the technical uh, whatever i don't know what his job title is forgive my ignorance at the national wrote but you know just about the fact that you have to go in on every other day to you know make sure the taps are drained so you know the um, you're not getting Legionella building up in the taps and you've got to keep, you know, a bit of the plant sort of warm and whatnot. And um, Jay, who looks after Jay Bridges, who looks after our building, he's written a similarly sort of moving article about how a building is alive. It's a it's a it's an organism which has a heartbeat and which has obviously people at the heart of it. But the building, too, is 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 alive. And I, I feel sort of sad and in mourning that all of these buildings are sort of dormant at the moment and lacking the communities and the teams which really um which fueled them and which they were built for it it's 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 desperately sad and where does your uh, relationship with the theater start Nikolai? where did it come from oh blimey um it started um quite a long time ago it started um I can't actually remember which came first. I think it was, I was very badly bullied at school. I mean, seriously bullied. And it went on for years and years. And it did actually get to a point where I did in my teenage years contemplate suicide, which was when it really sort of started to reach a sort of, um, uh, what's the word, a, a climax really. And it sort of had to be dealt with because it, it, it got it got grisly and, and, and very grim. And I remember the sort of the coming out of the, the, the uh, in hindsight, I realised I was sort of coming to the end of my bullying because it was when we sort of finally addressed it all. But I was being chased down the corridor by um, some uh, lovely people after school who I think were going to beat me up or flush my head down the toilet or call me queer or do all the lovely things they'd been doing to me there was nobody around and I was I was genuinely and I saw out of the corner of my eye as I was um, galloping down this corridor um, this poster for auditions for Oliver which I knew was a musical I must have seen the film and it just so happened that the um, auditions were happening at that day and at that time um, just as a means of survival really I knew there would be people music block auditioning for Oliver so um, I ran as fast as I possibly could and um, sort of exploded nearly smashing through the glass doors into the room where there were a lot of sort of studious people all sitting at desks learning you know these uh, Lionel Bart songs and I announced I was gonna audition for Oliver I'd never thought about it I had no inclination to do so um, but it was a it was a means to an end. It was a means to literally get those bullies off my back and not sort of get beaten up or verbally abused again that day. And and I think that's how it started. And then I remember from that I was obviously bitten, and there was an amazing um, music teacher, um, Mr. Blair, who um, really, I mean, he was just 
brilliant and I would stay back after rehearsals and he'd talk to me about music and structure and just tell me about Lionel Bart and the life of the man who's um, you know, show we were putting on and sort of fell in love with it like that and sort of became obsessed. And then from there, started going every Saturday matinee. My stepdad, we'd get, um, I'd get tickets for either the West Yorkshire Playhouse, as it was called there, then, or the Bradford Lambra. And I'd literally just go and watch the matinees of whatever was on, whether it was a big musical or, you know, Jude Kelly was running the West Yorkshire Playhouse then. So it was churning out, you know, you know, sort of um, amazing productions by Matthew Warchus and, you know, some of the leading writers of the day were having their plays premiered there. And at the time, of course, I didn't really know what any of this meant or who these people were. I just would go and sit at the back and see amazing theatre. And it was sort of my hideaway, really. And it was a place I felt safe and, you know, could be by myself and not feel like an outsider as as I did at school. And and that was how it started, really. And um uh, it was a very sort of rural working class community and there was no prospect of going to work in the theatre. It was all a sort of hobby and a and an, a private obsession. And, you know, we were all being channeled off to go and get serious jobs. You said your, uh, your, your stepdad used to take you to those matinees at uh, what was the West Yorkshire Playhouse. Was there is there any um, art in your family or are you the are you the only one? Well, my mum, when she she's got a very interesting life and she i mean in my in my life growing up she worked in a shop she was um an assistant you know manager and then manager of a, a concession in house of fraser in skipton but interestingly uh, because we have quite a sort of potted uh, family history my great 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 grandparents weirdly are descended were descended from the russian czar so somewhere in my heritage is a bit of um royal blood somewhere um although it clearly you know it doesn't sort of display itself very uh, clearly now um and when communism hit they fled russia and my mum, therefore, was was born in Finland and is Finnish. And when she was a little girl, she had dreams of being a ballerina. And although they were very poor because her family had lost everything when they fled um, Russia, w- w- when communism became the dominant force there, she she dreamt of being a ballerina and and, and she did actually audition and for a time dance in the corps de ballet of the Finnish um, national ballet, which is sort of extraordinary. Um, And she became the primary carer for her mother. So her dreams of maybe being a ballet dancer were dashed. And then we ended up, uh, she, she ended up coming here to the UK when I was three years old. And then we lived a very normal life. As I say, it was sort of working class, rural community my stepdad was an engineer so he was fixing machines with his hands and as I say she worked in a shop um, selling clothing so really in my formative years there was no culture or art really it was it was just lucky I I thank my lucky stars every day that I was going to a comprehensive school at a time when teachers were free to teach what they 
deemed was best and right and most inspiring for their students. They weren't sort of being bogged down by the curriculum or sort of being forced into, you know, obviously we had tests and we had our GCSEs and all of that, but it, it just was much freer. And the very fact there was music and a English teacher who taught us all about the Royal Court Theatre from 1956 onwards and the Royal Shakespeare Company and took us on theatre trips. I mean, looking back and thinking about how different the sort of um, education ecology is now for young people, it is absolutely um well i mean obviously it's a tragedy what what's happening in the education system today regarding culture and the arts or lack of it but i'm just so so lucky i was born when i was and that we were in this weird comprehensive school in the middle of you know a rural community but yet they did think that taking us on theater trips and reading plays and poetry was was important and 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 we did it and that was all part of that sort of um you know falling in love with the theatre and culture generally i guess and uh is there a moment that you can remember where you thought yes this is the thing for me this is the thing i'm going to pursue as my career yes so as i say um it like the idea of working in the theatre was just an alien concept and wasn't something that people like us did or would do or should do um, and so I sort of really applied myself to, you know, my studies and trying to get good GCSEs and then going on to A-levels. And it was about halfway through my A-levels where all of that sort of joy and all of the wonderful freedom that teachers seem to have had when we were doing our GCSEs, it seemed to have just gone. And it wasn't just it. It was a, it wasn't just about the pressure of A-levels, but you could feel the tide turning and now it was all about attainment and getting the A-levels in order to get to a university and in order to get on in life and everything became about the grades and I remember asking questions which just seemed to me like to be interesting questions and you know the the response would sometimes be well there's no need to know that there's no reason that we look at that because you won't be asked that in an exam and you won't be you will never need that knowledge and i remember just thinking well that's absolutely crazy and that 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 is bonkers and insane and i did something quite radical then which for me as a very sort of shy person who as i said been badly bullied so i sort of kept myself to myself and kept within my shell i uh left school um which you know that was quite a, a big thing and I went to Leeds which was the nearest big city and went to Park Lane College and did a theatre studies course and there there was suddenly a whole group of people who their only focus in their life was to work in the theatre whether it was as a director whether it was as an actor and suddenly my mind was blown because now we were doing creative projects which were all about you know the research and the thinking and the ideology of that project and it wasn't about passing a test it wasn't about getting the a level it wasn't about the exam it seemed to be about something much greater than that and then suddenly they start talking about oh well we could go to this drama school or i'm auditioning for this drama school or i'm thinking of going here and suddenly the door then was thrown open and then 
I got the prospectuses for drama schools and then I did my auditions and I got into drama centre and that's where I went as an actor. And it was about halfway through that training that I then switched over to, there wasn't a director's course, but again, it was a very privileged time when, you know, there weren't masses of courses and you could sort of, you know, roll with the punches and tutors and teachers were able to guide you in a way that was best for you rather than any sort of set curriculum. So that, again, is a very long-winded answer, but hopefully that answers the question. No, it's really interesting. And a a theme that comes up more often than not, a few people I've I've spoken to uh, on these podcasts uh, went to drama school with the intention of being an actor. And that was your intention as well, was it? You were, you thought you would be an actor. Totally. I can't, I can't, um, I can't express sort of uh, strongly enough I mean I was so sort of um, shy and naive of of the world and uh, and I sort of marvel nowadays at how transparent so much of theatre is and like you guys in Nottingham and at Curve you know we're, we can talk to people and we can tell them about all of these jobs but I genuinely had no notion that there were things called directors or lighting designers um, and so I got to drama centre and you know, it's very small drama school and you did everything. You built the sets for your third years. You did the lighting for the third year productions. You did the box office. You wrote things. We, you know, we were drilled on the history of theatre. We had to research the theatre from Greek times and every month would have to present a project based on the learning we'd uh, discovered for that period of theatre history. And suddenly you start to go, my God, there are all these amazing jobs and you know, we had amazing actors in our year. Tom Hardy was in our year. And, you know, we'd sort of, I'd write bits of sketches for Tom and build sets for stuff he was in. And I just thought, well, I'm never, I'm nowhere near like the sort of intensity and brilliance of this guy. I wonder if there's other things I could be doing because, you know, I, it's quite a big leap for me to get from my little village in Yorkshire to London to drama school. And I don't want to fail. I want to be the best I can be now I want to succeed um and at the end of my second year uh, they don't do this anymore but they threw people out at drama center if you weren't good enough in their eyes you were you were sent home packing and I was one of those people I mean they said you're not interested in acting you don't seem to be applying yourself to acting and of course I wasn't because I was doing everything else I was writing the scripts I was building the sets I was I realized now I was sort of directing these projects and so I, God knows where it came from, but I just said to them, look, please don't throw me out. I can't go back to Yorkshire with all this debt and my mum will be absolutely devastated. Um, I'll come back and I'll be a director. Let me learn about directing. I, I, I feel like I'm interested in whatever that means. And there were sort of doleful st- sort of stares from Christopher Fettis, who um, had actually trained um, Anthony Hopkins and Hopkins had used his character study for Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs on our principal, Christopher Fettis. So you can imagine how terrifying this man was. And he sort of stared at me for a few seconds, seemed to go on for an eternity. And he said, yeah, sure, come back in your third year. You'll assist me. You'll learn about directing. And and that's sort of where it, it rolled from there, really. Brilliant. Um, one of the things I've been asking everyone I've been talking to on this podcast is obviously right now, um, emerging and early career theatre directors uh, don't have the option to go and pursue training, but there is some time at home to perhaps think about practice and what you might want to be as a maker. So when you made that decision to be a director, 
Were there any uh, resources or books that were particularly important to you in informing what you were going to become as a theatre director? Yeah, I think the resources which I was sort of able to draw on was, you know, literally going around every single art gallery in London and just drinking in all of those sort of um, jewels that, you know, are there at the National Portrait Gallery or at the V&A and the British Museum and all of those sort of places. And I know we can't go physically to them now, but I just encourage people to go online and use this time to research and to fill their imaginations with imagery and words and music because I feel like as a director you're always calling on other artists work we're all magpies we're all there's very few of us who are clever enough or great enough to have a truly unique or original idea everything we do in the arts is because somebody did it 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago I mean we just did West Side Story and so much of the design and the imagery from that was sort of inspired by my um, appreciation of the work of Francis Bacon and so I think now is a really good time I mean frankly whatever stage in your career you're at is to watch movies, is to read plays, is to read novels, um, read the biographies, the autobiographies, sorry, of all of those great theatre directors, you know, Richard Eyre's diaries, Heitner's diaries from his time at the National, Michael um, Frayne's diaries, which were absolutely fascinating, Sir Peter Hall's diaries. There's so much we can learn from what's gone before. And I do feel often when we're working with young people, nowadays that there is sometimes a lack of appreciation of either directors or actors or artists who have come before and you you'll you know you'll drop a, a name you know sometimes even somebody like you know an obvious one like Laurence Olivier and you get a lot of blank looks and I think it's so important that we know about our past and can use you know the great work that's gone before to fuel us and to inspire us moving forwards and um and i think now is a really good time for all of us in those moments where you think well what can i do now i think looking at art online researching music you know these are all things which will stand us all in great stead for the future yeah uh, absolutely um and yeah, to sum that up, I cannot remember who said it now, but it's always struck me as a rather pertinent point for a theatre maker to bear in mind that you must know who you're stealing from. Exactly, um, exactly. Uh, so you uh, you go back to into your third year of drama school. You spend the year assisting Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> uh, and, then, uh, and then what happens towards the end of that time? How do you make the step into being a professional? So again, I think it was sort of moments of like luck and moments of happenstance. So in my third year, as well as assisting all of the directors who were directing shows for our third years, there was um, a fax. So this is how old I am. There were faxes in uh, 20 odd years ago and it came through saying that the Queen's Theatre in Hornchurch, who at that point had a repertory company were looking for a rehearsal assistant for their production of the importance of being earnest and basically all you'd have to do is toddle along you'd be able to watch the rehearsal process and you know any research cups of tea that needed making you would be the sort of you know 
dog's body who would do all of that. And I thought, brilliant. I mean, how amazing to be able to assist at Drama Centre, but also go into a real, you know, rehearsal room with grown-ups and proper, you know, grown-up actors. And it, it was amazing. And Maria Charles, who is no longer with us, she was Lady Bracknell. And it was just an amazing experience. And, you know, you were just sort of drinking it all in. But... Again, happenstance in the green room at the Queen's Theatre in Hornchurch was another fax. And this was advertising the Regional Theatre Young Directors Scheme, which at that time was sponsored by Channel 4. And I read the bump and I thought, well, this just sounds like an amazing opportunity and like was one of the very few opportunities at that time for, you know, an emerging director. And I thought, well, there's no way on earth I would be considered for something like this but I'm going to go for it and you know spent weeks and weeks boring my flatmates with my application and um, lo and behold got an interview and as you as you know the, the rest is clear I was successful in getting on that scheme and was just so blessed that I um, was uh, uh, sent off to Sheffield to be the resident assistant director there when Michael Grandage was just starting his directing career um, and was sort of taking Sheffield theatres to this incredible new high and really putting regional theatre on the map. And it was, it was again, it was sort of good fortune that on some of those school trips we'd gone to see shows at Sheffield and... I remember on the application form, it said, which of the three regional theatres would you like to go to? You know, put them in order, one, two and three. And I just wrote Sheffield, 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 because I'd seen so much great work there and just thought that stage was amazing. So basically went to Sheffield, worked there for a year under my apprenticeship with the regional theatre scheme. And then I think they kept me on for another year. And then at the end of that, that second year, Michael uh, offered me a, a show to direct, which was um, a chorus line in their bigger space. And then that sort of helped me make the transition from assisting into directing. And he was very wise and generous, Michael. He said, you know, you probably have a good success with the chorus line, but you need something to pay your way and pay your rent with until you can you know, get some jobs from a chorus line because they're not going to come in straight away. So after a chorus line, I went back to assisting him and assisted on a tour of um, a Tennessee Williams place in the last summer. And I was able then, it was such a wise bit of advice he gave me, I was able to, you know, send out all my reviews from a chorus line, go and meet the artistic directors, do all my networking and make those connections on the back of a chorus line but while being sort of buffered and supported by an income from um, the, the, the tour of Suddenly Last Summer. And then from there, I started getting uh, jobs in other regional theatres. Terry Hands, um, who recently um, invited me to Theatre Cluid to direct a play. Gemma Bodinets at Liverpool invited me to direct a play. Um, Dee Cannon, who was the artistic director then of Mercury Colchester, these were all people who were um, took a risk on me and hadn't seen a chorus line, but had read positive reviews and had a meeting with me and trusted me. And it was it was, you know, again, at the time you didn't think about it. It was just hard work and you were enjoying the freedom and the excitement of going off and being a director. But I just look back and I think, goodness, I was so lucky 
that so many of these theatres were constantly making plays. You know, back in the day, Leeds Playhouse was presenting 26 shows a year. Now, like all of us, you know, it's between six and 10 shows and many of those are co-productions. So it reduces and limits the opportunities there are for freelance directors, for young directors coming into the, um, you know, the theatre ecology. So I just felt, you know, very blessed and very lucky again that I was around at that time where you could... You, you could just about carve a, an existence and eke out a career as, as, a, as a freelance director. And um, you were one of the most prolific freelance directors around, weren't you? I, I, I certainly remember, uh, because I used to work for the original theatre company, a touring theatre company. Oh, um, um, yes. Uh, and I remember going to see a production of yours. I'm going to say it's Calamity Jane on tour at the Mold. Oh yeah, Theater. yeah. Um, because uh, because uh, I'd I'd done I'd done a show that was going into Malvern the week after Calamity Jane, and I always used to go and have a look at the venue we were going to go to in case there were any like hiccups and everything, just so I could like feel the room. And I went to see that. I thought it was brilliant. And I went somewhere else the next day to another theatre, and you had another show on. I was like, how does he do this? Where does all the time come from? So just tell us a bit like what that was like when we when you well, were running around making all that, the work in the world. A lot of that was born out of. Um like personal circumstance and not um as i sort of alluded to before not coming from a background which could support a sort of um any sort of frivolous freelance career in the arts i mean i had to work to pay my rent and put food on the table it was as basic as that there was no you know there was no private income or family who could sustain you know a, a, a bed sit in london and you know, uh, uh, without working. So people say you can direct between three and four shows a year. And I think on average in my freelance career, I would be averaging six. And sometimes I would be going from show to show and it was simply in order to, you know, pay the rent. And sometimes, you know, it'd be a drama school gig or, you know, a, a workshop of a, a new piece or whatever it, it might be. But it was hard work. And I've sort of, I, I've, I've enjoyed keeping that sort of, um, that ethos going at curve and working hard and directing shows and really hopefully setting out what the artistic vision of the theatre is by by doing it and 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 doing it myself and um making the work and hopefully leading i guess from the the, the front in in that in that regard but yeah some of those um freelance days were quite crazy i remember once um We'd we'd done um, a production of the Scottish play in Singapore in a in a park outside in um, Fort Canning Park in Singapore, and you know it'd been really exciting, like you know going to the other side of the world to direct a Shakespeare play, and then literally getting off the plane, sort of six a.m. in um, London, getting the train to Manchester, getting the tram from Manchester Piccadilly to Oldham, and then heaping my luggage up the hill you know in the pouring rain in Oldham then to start rehearsals for um Terry Johnson's Dead Funny and just thinking god if anybody thinks theatre is glamorous or um you know sort of sexy it's actually it's just a lot of hard work and it's brilliant but if you don't enjoy that hard work and you don't sort of get off on the the sort of um the, the the intensity of it then then it's then it's not for you but I always and and still do desperately love it um and can you talk a bit about your uh, decision to uh, apply for the artistic directorship of curve and why it felt like the right time and uh, yeah what what was 
what was that decision about? Well, I didn't apply to begin with because I'd given up. I'd um, I'd applied for a few of these gigs um, and I'd seen, you know, people as experienced and in some cases less experienced than me getting the gigs and being very successful. And I sort of got a bit depressed and thought, well, it's not going to happen for me. I'm, you know, I'm I'm just not what they um what they're looking for in those interviews for those sort of jobs because I'm not, you know, I haven't been to Oxbridge. I'm not posh. I'm too honest. I'm, I've sort of, you know, I, I just, I realise that in those meetings, I just don't present in the way that an artistic director should or is perceived to blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, those applications, as I'm sure you know, take up a lot of time. It's a good, you know, good couple of weeks work to put in an application for a job like that. And I'd gone through a few of them and, you know, I thought, well, I've got to, you know, I've got to recognise that this is just not for me. It's not, um, I'm not good enough. I'm not right uh, because I, I keep being turned down. I keep getting quite close, but then it just doesn't work out. Um, so when the curve job came up, I didn't apply to begin with. Um, and it was only at the insistence of my mum, who was from this chat plays a sort of quite major role in my life and I think um, the person who was sort of doing the recruitment who'd seen me for other jobs said look why why aren't you applying for this job because this one I think is really well suited to you and I said well yes we said the other one and um, actually I've, I've sort of had enough of applying for these jobs and and being as successful and and you know I was sort of um, encouraged to you know put my hat in the ring and I did and um, I'd always wanted to work full time at a theatre ever since really I'd worked at Sheffield at the Crucible on RTYDS. I loved and loved being part of a team and getting to know people over a period of time where, you know, all of that sort of usual politeness and sort of, um, you know, getting to know people in a very short space of time, it's taken away and you can just crack on and do the best possible work. And that's why I love Curve and miss it so much now. And it's taken a few years, but now as a team at Curve, we're all in the groove together and so many things you don't need to ask for or suggest because we just know what our house style is. We know what the sort of Curve vibe is. And when we're making a production or working on a piece of marketing together or working on a new work strategy or whatever, it, is, it just feels really much easier now because we've got into that groove and that comes out of being part of a company part of an ensemble you know being part of a team over a sustained period of time and I think that's why I wanted to be an artistic director that's why I wanted to work um, in a theatre in this way and I'm so grateful that um, you know Curve took a risk it was Fiona Allen and the chair of the board the then chair Sir Philip Tasker you know they took a risk on somebody who'd never worked in an organisation like this, who did not have the sort of um, education or um, backing of the, you know, the the sort of great and the good of British theatre. I was a sort of outsider feel and, you know, the people I work with feel that that risk paid off because obviously we're all learning every day and we make mistakes and sometimes things don't quite work out. But it feels like now we're on a really exciting journey together and we're all sort of... Um, well, we were on an exciting journey together and we'll fight with every sort of fibre in our bodies to make sure that journey uh, continues. Chris Stafford, the CEO, and I were sort of, you know, vowed that when all this kicked off, we'll do whatever it takes to, you know, keep that theatre moving forwards and, and, and doing good work. 
I wonder if we can just uh, uh, switch now and talk just a little bit about process. Um, and in particular, I would love to talk uh, for you to talk a, a little bit about your process when working on a musical, because it's um, it's actually it's not something that people talk about that often. And I wonder if you can just think about the first week in your rehearsal room when you're uh, when you're mounting one of your uh, big successful shows like uh, West Side Story or An Officer and a Gentleman. So um, first, I'd say first week in the rehearsal room, the first day um, is terrifying, as I guess it is um, for everyone. And I would traditionally start with presenting the, um, you know, the the concept and the idea around the production and 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 sort of talk less about the specifics and more about the resonance that it may have to the world we live in today and bits of research and work I've done before starting with everybody that sort of might be pointers and directions that we might sort of look at um, sort of moving forward so presenting the ideas and the themes within the play in sort of quite broad terms and hopefully ways that feed people's imaginations and sort of get them um, you know, thinking about the play in an inspired and inspiring way. And um, I suppose lay the foundations for this being a very collaborative process whereby um, it is a, it's going to be a, a room and a process that even though you're going to be learning music and you're going to be learning choreography, which are quite practical sort of nuts and bolts, um, we're going to be working and creating together. So sort of laying the foundations of that and then looking at the model box and looking at the costume designs and looking at how some of the things we talked about, the politics and the um, uh, the resonance of the play, how that manifests itself physically in the world that we've created, whether that's to do with the period the play is set in or, um, you know, the, the specific concept or take that we have on the piece um, and that I guess would take up most of the morning um, and then it might be in the afternoon that we do a read through and um, with a musical I'll warn the cast sort of ahead of that time that we're going to read the song lyrics like poetry we're going to read it like a speech in a play and we're not going to sort of try and half sing it we're going to really interrogate the lyrics in that read through in the same way we do the script and so that you immediately, there is no differential between the words and the song, the spoken words and the sung words, because that's the worst thing, isn't it? That's why people hate musicals. You know, you're sort of doing a scene and people are behaving sort of like quite in quite a human way. And then suddenly they launch into song and they don't act through song. They don't sort of embody the lyric with the character and the sort of sense of objectivity that they might do with text and I think that's really important to sort of set out you know from the word go um from the get-go so we'll read through it that I guess would take the, the the full day the whole first day then the second day we would probably start with reading the script again but now starting to share all of our research to talk about the characters and to talk about anything we don't understand or isn't clear and ahead of rehearsals, I'll have created a research pack with a lot of sort of politics history pertaining to the play so that the actors will have A, read that and hopefully that will have 
given them more reading, more music, more bits to look at, which will feed into that discussion. And those discussions, I just think, I often wish we filmed them or released them as a podcast because they are so amazing. They're so interesting. And so often you feel with musicals because of such snobbery around the art form, you'll often get musical theatre actors who aren't allowed to speak in rehearsal rooms and they're simply told to stand there, do this, do it like that. And often with these people, often they're young people, you give them license to share their intellect and their insight. And it, 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 it can be absolutely ball-breakingly mind-blowing at times. I mean, some of the discussions we had around West Side Story were just incredible and so impressive. And you just learned so much from these actors and the ideas and the sort of links they were making to the world today, to what was happening in the 1950s in New York, not just in terms of the literal, you know, gangs on the streets, but in terms of the politics and fiscal policy and the whole infrastructure of society. It was absolutely incredible so that we'll sort of spend a half day on and then normally that second day in the afternoon we'd hand over to the music department so they can actually start learning the music but by this point they've sort of had the chat on the first day in the morning they've had the read through they've then had the second session where we've started to pull the text to bits and really share research and work and then hopefully all of that is feeding into the music and also, I think some directors would leave the room or, you know, not sit in on the music rehearsal, but I'll always sit there and be part of it, even though you might just be sitting quietly for two hours. But again, if there's questions or you can constantly connect what's happening with the music, you know, even if it's just a comment or a note or a thought with what, what they're learning musically, and then sort of day three, we'd probably do a bit of text work again. Then in the afternoon, maybe do some choreography based on the music that had been learned on day two. And then the days would sort of continue like that. And then hopefully by the end of the first week, I'm always really keen to get up on the floor and break the back of the first scene. A, because it's like that fear all directors have that you think, well, I can't direct. I've got no idea how to do it with every new project. And you just want to go home on that Saturday afternoon and feel like, yeah, I've got up on the floor and selfishly, I've been able to direct the opening scene and I can still do it. But also then it feels that people go home after that first week, having done a load of work on choreography, scene work, research, world of the play, music, and that all of those things are completely intertwined and messily sort of sit cheek by jowl so even though there is some like this is a music learning thing or this is some choreography everything is sort of taking its starting point from you know the um the ideas that you discussed and the the sort of sharing you did on those first two days around the sensing and the sensuality and the 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 the, the poetry of what is the the heart of that that world really um and then from there you just carry on and it's hard work and it's meticulous and musicals are the hardest thing you know you've got all of these elements coming together often complicated pieces of scenery that you don't meet until um you know the tech and that's one of the things that's so great about being an artistic director and having a theater you can call home and having an amazing team like we do at curve because they know how passionately I feel about getting a rehearsal set in the space, getting props in the space, getting the real bits of furniture in the space so that you can create a world where 
every single thing on stage, whether it's an actor or a prop or a piece of scenery, has meaning. Nothing is there as a sort of arbitrary thing. Everything has value and has been thought about and has been meticulously planned and that its journey in the space it has value. And if you took it away, the you know, the a prop or a piece of furniture or a person, the piece would be diminished by not having it there because it's been so meticulously and intelligently sort of thought through. So that's a very sort of potted um, sort of uh, sort of insight, I guess, into that that sort of process. That's brilliant and super detailed and interesting. I wonder, you mentioned that there is definitely a snobbery around musical theatre. Where do you think that comes from? I think it, I, I don't really understand it, to be honest with you, because musicals, if as, as you know, all of the great musicals, I mean, even The Boyfriend, I mean, yes, it might be a little bit frivolous and it might be, um, you, you know, a bit bit slight in places, but even The Boyfriend is, a, is about sort of society and what's expected of us and, you know, social norms and class and our obsession as English people with, you know, the class structure. So all of the great musicals, West Side Story, Oklahoma, um, Hamilton Today, they're all political. They all have something to say about the world we live in today. And they do it in, as I say, the most complex way through music and choreography. And sometimes they don't use any words. Sometimes it's just through dance or or um, a series of scenes without words and just just music and movement. So you think, where on earth has this idea come from that somehow this is slight or frivolous or easy? But somewhere it has, you know, people have dismissed it as a lesser art form or it, at the worst time, they've not even considered it as an art form. It's just sort of been, um, you know, written off as, um, as um, you know, something beneath Shakespeare, something beneath New Place, something beneath you know the, the, the legitimate drama and it's so refreshing um that the times have changed and all these people who witter on about diversity as this sort of buzzword and they're, they're you know they're finally coming round to our way of thinking that the way you get diverse groups of people into your buildings is by presenting something which is truly egalitarian and the musical is one of the most egalitarian art forms there is because um, often you don't need to speak the language the piece is being performed in to absolutely understand a what is happening from a plot point of view but mo more importantly what is happening emotionally and what what the narrative is so um, you know I and again when I started my career I was told by a, I remember clear as day being told by a very prominent um, you know theatre producer you'll never work for me because you direct musicals because my you know the first thing I ever did was a chorus line and you know a, a musical so I don't get where the snobbery comes from it, it's an English thing you know the Americans obviously invented uh, the Broadway musical and they've never had a, a problem with it they've always loved their musicals and recognized them for what they are the most well it's the American art form isn't it so um, but I'm glad it's changing in this country and I'm glad more theatres are putting on musicals and recognise them for the good they can do within our communities and, you know, certainly getting young people excited and involved in theatre and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're great things. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, speaking of the great Broadway musical, have you seen that uh, the terrific uh, PBS documentary about the uh, early musical composers uh, uh, on Broadway? It's definitely worth looking up while we're in in lockdown. If you haven't, no, I haven't. Yeah, well, you can find it online. I think it's uh, it, they showed it. They showed it on BBC Four, but PBS in America made it uh, right. about the early history of the American musical and its uh, socio-historical impact. It's brilliant. Uh, now, I know we're, uh, uh, we're short on time, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak to us. We just have two more quick questions. First of all, can you tell us about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind? Oh, gosh, that blew my mind. Um, can I think of a work of art that recently um, blew my mind? Yes, I possibly can. I'm just trying to... Um, search through my um uh memory banks of what to choose i think i've been looking a lot recently at the sort of um edward hopper paintings just because of where we are in terms of well the world right now and his sort of studies of loneliness and limerence and these sort of um isolated um figures so that sort of um I've been thinking a lot about his paintings. I'm not sure that's exactly blown my mind, but maybe what has blown my mind a little bit was recently we went over to Stockholm to see um, a production of um, The Witches of Eastwick there. And I went to, they've got a fantastic photography uh, museum and there was an, there is an American art uh, photographer, Alex Prager, whose work I've never come across before. And I think that blew my mind. It's sort of very um, vivid in terms of the use of colour, very saturated photographs. I think it's sort of focusing on the southern states of America and it's people in social situations. So whether it's on a train or in a shopping precinct or at a market or in a cinema, and it's just groups of people, but they're they're staged photographs and they're very, very theatrical and they're sort of showing social sort of situations and things I think we consider to be social norms. But when you sort of look closer at them, they sort of suggest, I think, destruction and an underbelly of violence and things not quite being what they seem there seems to be a sort of um quite cold sort of menace and violence under them that sort of reminded me a bit of Harold Pinter but in a sort of very saturated vivid way so I think that blew my mind because I'd never seen anything quite like it and it was just so um it was the use of colour and, as I say, these sort of seemingly normal situations that were just sort of blown up into this very sort of um, theatrical landscape. So probably Alex Prager, the photographer, who was completely new to me, um, I would say. Um, yeah, I think that's probably it, to be honest. Great. Um, well, that sounds really interesting. I'll certainly be looking him up once we're looking him up once we're finished talking. Um, and finally, can you just recommend something that we can all enjoy while social distancing? 
Well, I suppose I better promote like, um, like as a sort of like direct competition to you guys. Like at Curve, we're doing loads of like the show must go online stuff. So there's archives of our past shows and lots of activities for kids to get involved with. And pieces a bit not dissimilar to this in terms of talking to artists about their pros, uh, process and whatnot. So there's a bit of this sort of thing. And I think just like, I mean... I'm sure people have said it before, but Netflix and like Amazon Prime are so such sort of wealths of information right now. And, you know, it's not just necessarily looking at the latest sort of box sets, but I've just been just by chance looking at sort of movies from the 70s and some of the looking at some of those um, American um movie actors who are now sort of icons like looking at Meryl I watched Meryl Streep in Kramer versus Kramer again the other day and just looking you know at looking at some of these actors before they're sort of great big mega stars it's really important because you just they're just amazing they're absolutely incredible and seeing their work and their process and is is really astonishing and I and I watched um, Saturday Night Fever um, the other night, which, you know, um, people I'm sure have written off, you know, going back to some of our earlier conversations about musicals and how they're viewed and whatnot. And A, it's a brilliant script and an amazing sort of slice of working class Italian life in Brooklyn it, during this period of time. But John Travolta is absolutely astonishing. I mean, he really is extraordinary in that film. Um, and then going back a bit further, I just happened to watch... Um, um, east of East of Eden again with um, James Dean, and again you just sort of look at some of this acting, and you just cannot get your brain box around how these guys are doing it, and it's just so beautiful and magical, just from a sort of human perspective. But as sort of people interested in theatre and the art of acting, and you know certainly from my point of view, how actors behave and you know, thinking of how you get the best performances out of people. Those are three things I've watched recently where I've where I've sort of thought, wow, that's it's really interesting just to look back on these people. And as I say, in this sort of more embryonic phase of discovery for them when they're sort of practicing their craft in its sort of purest sense, because it's not sort of um, saddled with that idea of being a star or an icon or somebody everybody recognizes. So that 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 they would be my sort of top tips for these times of isolation and um you know when we're having a bit of time to have a look at look at stuff brilliant um well that sounds uh, excellent uh nikolai thank you very much for talking to us today it's been a real pleasure um yeah uh, it's been lovely and good luck with everything that's uh, that's going on at the curve right now um thank you thank you craig it's great to talk to you and lots of love and good wishes to all of you up in nottingham Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghampleyhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.